This message by Sam Shin, entitled The Loving Savior, was recorded at Wellspring Church on November 24, 2019. The text for this message is 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word. Please be seated. For those of you who were here a few weeks ago, I had uh, talked about how different words are used and overused. And when they are overused, they lose its significance, its power, its punch. Words like awesome, sin. You know, there's another word that is used even more than those words. The word is love. Love is used quite often. It's used so much that it's truly lost its meaning because people say, I love, I love the color blue or I love leggings. <laughs> I love boba. Or, I love pumpkin spice lattes. Jesus uses this word as well, but he uses it in the way in which it should be used. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, love one another. And that phrase, even though it's rightly used, also can be misunderstood because it's used so often. We might say that to our children, to your daughter or son who is about to throw something. Love one another. Uh, the... Pharisees heard this word, and they struggled with it. They heard Jesus say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In their mind, though, they did exactly that, and they couldn't understand that they weren't truly loving their neighbor as themselves. And so the question then becomes, even though this is a new commandment, it's also an old one. The Pharisees knew it to be an old one because it was first spoken about in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. John writes in verse 7, I'm going to point you back to this again, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And John's reference is to something that Jesus wrote about, and John spoke about it in his gospel in John 13, 31, 35. I'm going to read this to you, and we'll read it together. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little ch children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And here comes the critical verses of 34 and 35. As a new commandment, I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus says it's a new commandment. But surely the Pharisees, when they're hearing this, and the, the fellow Jews who are listening to this, they know this is not a new commandment at all. It's actually a very old commandment. And that's what John is emphasizing in our text today, in our passage, verse 7, is that this is no new commandment. 
It's an old commandment, but it is new. So really the question is, what is John talking about? What is he referring to here then? What he's really wrestling with is the idea of what is love? What does it mean to be a person of love, a loving person? And I'd like to look at what John says here about this person of love by looking at his two contrasts, that what a loving person is not fleshes out what a loving person truly is. So first, we're going to look at these two contrasts in characterizing what it means to be a loving person. And it's everything that John is calling each one of us to be a loving person. The first characteristic and contrast of this loving person is that this loving person is not blinded by darkness, but walks in the light. So that's, first of all, what a loving person is, not blinded by darkness, but walks in the light. And we see this in verses 8 and 9, as well as verse 11, which says, John writes, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The darkness has blinded his eyes. We've discussed much about what it means to be in the light. In these verses, John begins to specify what it means to be in the light and to be in darkness. And the primary means by which darkness and light is expressed in John's eyes is someone who either loves or hates another person. One thing we know about a loving person that John lays out for us is that this loving person is in the light. And it means that essentially a loving person can tell the difference between light and dark. And that sort of makes sense. It makes logical sense. A blind person cannot tell what light looks like because they're blind. They're always in the dark. But the seeing person is able to see both darkness and light. It's not as though they can only see light. They also understand what darkness looks like. And so that's the distinction between the two. The blind person only sees darkness and has no idea what light is like. The person who sees can understand both light and dark. The darkened person also isn't just surrounded by darkness. They have darkness internalized. It's within them. It's in their soul. They've closed their heart to themselves, to others, and most of all to God. And how do we know this? We know this by the fruit of this dark person. And again, the darkened person hates his brother. That's what a darkened person looks like. There's a hatred in them. There's a, a bitterness and anger. The linkage between anger and bitterness and darkness is quite strong in the Bible. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. The Hebrews writer writes it and puts it this way. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It doesn't take much to actually begin the process of seeing a root of bitterness grow in your heart. You know, actually all it takes is one hurt feeling left unchecked, left undealt with, one hurtful word from another person, and suddenly you're your pride is, is tweaked. You're left a little angered, a little frustrated. And rather than dealing with it, as Jesus talks about, as we shared last week in Matthew 18, 
We sort of leave it simmering in our soul. And Hebrews tells us that a root of bitterness slowly starts corroding our heart. It hardens it. And it comes to a point where it actually, the Hebrews writer says, springs up, causes trouble amongst other people. It never stays on its own. It affects and infects all around you. George Neiman told me the story. Uh, George is the founder of Hands, for those who are new with us, Hands at Work, which is a ministry that we work with in Africa. He told me the story of the founder of Hands at Work Canada. Um, this man was a obviously a, a fervent lover of the Lord and had a passion for the gospel going out and for the care of orphans and widows in Africa. He actually did so much for Canada that really, out of all the international offices and hands, hands at work all around the world, it's Canada that is the strongest, has sent the most volunteers, sends the most people to Africa, um, support, has the most money sent to Africa. When George and uh, Lynn Chenowitz, who's also with hands, they were with us um, about a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to them, and they were sharing this incredible tragedy that happened to this man. Basically, what happened is that a problem had arose in his church. He had been offended by someone at the church. And so, in in this unresolved anger and dispute, a heart of bitterness, a root of bitterness started growing to the point where he started distancing himself from all Christians, uh, from people he cared about, people who had spoken into his life, whom he was a significant part of, and all the people from hands. And they were coming, even from Africa, trying to talk to him and trying to tell him, don't turn away from Christ, don't turn away from Christ. But he refused to listen and believe. And slowly but surely, that heart grew harder and harder. Only recently, uh, as he had this heart of bitterness, literally at the age of 48, when, after all these people tried to convince him to turn turn back to Christ, he was struck with a heart attack and died at 48 years of age. They held his funeral at a, a biker bar. He was actually so far away from the Lord that his funeral is held in a bar. I mean, to me, that is such a stark contrast. How do you get from someone who not only loves Jesus whose heart is for reaching out and bringing the gospel to the lost and to the poorest of the poor, and suddenly comes to a place where you completely turn away, reject him, have all these people who care for you speaking into your life, and you still turn away, you still refuse. It all sprung up from a one hurt, one bit of anger. When Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 5, he discusses anger, and he says that anger puts us in danger of the fires of hell. We read that text and that passage, and we probably think, how can that be? How can that, because frankly, who amongst us has never been angry? I don't think anyone in this room can claim to have ever pushed away completely anger. How can that lead us to the edge of hell or even into it? Because it really is what Hebrews calls the root of bitterness that hardens our hearts, that turns us away from Christ. It's what John talks about as when you hate your brother, you place yourself 
into incredible amounts of danger. And the thing about darkness is that you don't know you're in the darkness, especially if you've been blinded. But those who care about you, they will point it out. They will show you, be forewarned, there's darkness in your soul. And yet, it's hard for you as the person in that to really experience and know you are in the darkness. You see, darkness isn't merely outside a person, it's inside the person. And it's dark because you cannot tell. And the person who's in the light, it's not as though they've never been in darkness. The reason why they're able to help someone in the darkness is because they themselves were once in the darkness as well. want to point out to you Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. Two verses in Proverbs that sort of gives us this picture. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. To a person, when we are embittered or angered or in a place of hatred, you can't tell that you're in that place. Everything always seems right to you. But its way is death. Another proverb, Proverbs 14.1. This expresses it even more so, fleshes it out more. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Now, you're probably thinking, what does that have to do with the previous proverb? You have to notice the first part of this proverb. It's very The way the Proverbs writer wrote it is so insightful. He says, the wisest of plural women builds her house, but folly with her singular own hands tears it down. Meaning that the woman who is able to build the house together in community with other women. And trust me, we're right now building a church building. There is so much complexity. And when you're building a project together and you have a group of people coming together, there's all sorts of ideas and thoughts. And it's not easy to take all that and put it together. It's not easy to be in community. But the wisest of women comes together and is open in their heart and sometimes is hurt says the wrong words, is offending, and yet you're still in community. But folly, foolishness of a single woman or a single man tears it down. It only takes one. See, the woman who is open to correction, the man who not only needs it but wants it, is the person who is apart from what Proverbs 14.12 says is someone who does only what is right in their own eyes. That's foolishness. And that is the road to destruction. If you've ever driven through a rainstorm and you get beyond the edges of it and you're right outside of it and you see the sun, the sun is just brightly shining and you're driving away from the rainstorm that was pouring onto your car. After you drive out of that storm, you look back, you see the gray clouds, you might see lightning, you see the sheets of rain coming down. But the sun is bright where you are. You could see the rain, you see the sun. But before, when you're in the rain, you can't see the sun. It's just the rain that you see. Well, my friends, it's the same way as darkness. The same heart of anger and hatred. We know what it looks like because we've experienced it. When, you've, when you're outside of it and you say, 
wow, I, I look back at the way that I was, I was so close-hearted. If you were to examine your own heart today, and you can reflect and examine and think and consider, what was I like when I was self-centered? Maybe in a conflict with a spouse, or a child, or a parent. And you imagine it's, you know, it's, it's easy looking retrospectively, isn't it? After a conflict, and you start thinking, why was I like that? Why did I say those words? Why was I so selfish? And it's almost unimaginable to think that that person over there was me. That's what it's like when you're out of the storm. You're looking back and you say, the sun is beautiful. So glad I'm out of that storm. But when you're in the middle of the storm, when you're in the middle of the conflict, you just cannot see the sun. You're blinded by it. And then you have people around you who have experienced the storm, but they're out in the sun and they're coming up to you and say, don't stay there. Don't be so angry. Don't be so... What you think is so important, it's not that important. You can let that go. And our hearts are so hardened at that point. You know, we really have that heart of what the Proverbs woman is stating in Proverbs 14 too. There, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Paul describes the person in the darkness and light this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded, same idea as John, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is so much to unpack there. We could spend another few messages talking about that. But this is what the essence of this text is. The God who created the universe, who when there was nothing, he said in Genesis 1, let there be light. So that creative light physically, which scientists and all of us think, that is a marvelous work. But Paul's saying it's a greater work that Christ has shown the light. He said, let there be light in your own heart where there was only darkness. So that Christ could be glorified. So that the gospel would no longer be veiled. You know, it is the gospel light that unveils our hearts to help us to love another person. Especially when they hurt us when they speak words that are painful, when they have ridiculed us, or they've abandoned us, betrayed us, there is no way to come back and to say, I love you in the midst of that. That's just not possible. But it is the gospel light. That's why Paul says that this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, the God of this world, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It is Jesus who loved us, who gave himself for us. That love is now what needs to be poured out to other people. It's not going to be me somehow willing it. I have to love this person. You know, they drive me bonkers. 
I can't stand what they do in my life, but I have to love this person because I'm going to will myself to do it. We all know how that works. It doesn't work. It always falters and fails. I have to constantly go back to the well of the gospel and drink from it and remember Christ has loved me and gave himself for me. I was once in the dark. God said by his grace, let there be light in my heart through Christ. And it allows me then to extend that light to other people. This is what it takes in order for us to be freed from this blindness. And so verse 11 describes it this way. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The loving person cannot hate his brother. It's just not possible. It's not something we can do. Instead, we press on to love. If hatred and anger and bitterness is a sign of someone living in darkness, then what would you think is the sign of someone living in the light? It's persistent, steadfast love. I don't think that means that we sort of fake our way to it. It might take time. And time is something that we can rest on and we can press forward in, but we never give up. We never just simply say, it's too much work, it's too hard, too difficult, and it is too hard. That's the thing. It is very difficult. It is the most difficult thing in the world to love someone who is absolutely unlovable. But we don't ever do it from our own power and will and strength. We decide to do it based on faith in light of what Christ has done for me. And the thing about John is that he, he again leaves us no place to hide or to sort of come halfway. We can't say, I don't like him, but I love him. You know, that's sort of another way of saying, I don't really love him, but I love him. It's, it's just not something you can do. It's the idea of like means that we have to spend time with the person. We have to care for the person. We have to forgive this person. And it, again, it's a process. I'm not saying we just automatically convince ourselves we do it without going through the hardship of it all. But we can't say, I don't like him. I will never like him, but I will love him. We can't say we're frenemies. That doesn't work. You can't say we're good as long as we never see each other again. We can, you see, that's the thing. We try to fool our hearts into not loving someone, into actually, dare I say it, into hating someone. John, again, he doesn't give us degrees of love, that there's hate and love and there's like in the middle, and there's likeful loving and hateful liking, and somewhere along the way, somewhere in the middle, we're trying to figure out where we fit with this person. He just doesn't do that. It's either hate or love. And it's because that's exactly what Jesus does for us. Everything is tied into Jesus. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he died on a cross for people who had no love for him at all. So therefore, there's nothing in between for us. And when we try to make the excuses of saying, well, we, they're just so difficult, but I'll try to love him, but I really won't want to. Again, then we're really ignoring and we're in danger of a root of bitterness. And that is a hardening 
an area where we are in danger of being in the dark. If you can't love a fellow Christian, and albeit a very broken, weak, sinful, needy Christian, then how can we say, for example, love an enemy, which Jesus also commands us to do? And you can't say that you love theology and the Bible and love doctrine, but then don't love so-and-so. Lest we forget, Paul said that you can do many things that seem so loving, and yet if you don't love another person who is an enemy or someone who's difficult to love, then all that is meaningless. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 2-3. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I mean, can you imagine that? The faith to move mountains. But have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I become a martyr, but have not love, I gain nothing. A Christian cannot hate someone and still claim to be in the light. Because John contrasts the two, love and hatred. He tells us we have to decide, are we going to hate or are we going to love? There's no degrees. To not love is to hate. And we don't like to think of it that way. We like euphemisms. We like to seem nice. And you know the Bible never uses the word nice. It's actually the word to describe that type of person is kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, a Christian. It's not about externally looking a certain way. It is possible to hate in your heart, to be sinning against God, and yet to look not so bad. And it is possible to even be in a relationship, even being in a relationship of a covenant of love, and yet still hate. I remember a conflict that um, Sua, my wife, and I had when our children were very young. It was, uh, as most conflicts go when you're young, I had no idea. I don't remember what it was about. I doubt she remembers either. But I do remember the conflict and how it went itself. And as we were just so angry, and I was, I was very angry. That's all I remember. But I most remember her words to me. And she said in the middle of this conflict, she said, when I look at you, you have hatred in your eyes. And of course, in that moment, you just want to deny that. No way. I, I don't hate you. What, how dare you say? I, well, anyway, the argument's going on and on. Because the word hatred is so strong. But as I reflected on it, I realized I did. In that moment, I hated my wife. Really. It was that strong. I didn't want to admit it because to admit it means I'm so vile, so corrupt in my soul. But you know what? To admit it also meant I need a savior. I can't do this by myself. We can't go on as husband and wife with this heart. To admit it means you need Jesus. And see, the danger is not the hatred. The danger is not recognizing your hatred. It is hatred and denial that is the most deadliest of places to be. It is hatred and self-protection. It is hatred and hardening. That combination is one where 
You go off the cliff. You are blinded. And that puts you into a place where darkness is before you. But the Savior gave his life so that you would not be in that place. The second characteristic of the loving person is that this person does not cause others to stumble, but encourages others. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So the word stumbling is more than just about a person who trips over an obstacle. It's that they're also mindful of the obstacles there so that no one else is going to trip over the obstacle. That's the thing about a loving person is that they're always thinking about other people. They're concerned about the people around them. The blind person, because they cannot see, they're only concerned about themselves. They're only focused on what they do and how their lives are impacted. And so if, say, a man comes home from work and he's angry, he had a bad day at work because of certain pressures. Maybe his, his manager, his boss was just unruly and took it all out on him. So he comes home, comes home, and as soon as the garage door starts creaking open, all the kids start scattering because that's what their father is usually like. He's an angry bear, and the kids need to take cover. And everyone needs to be put on their best behavior because everyone is afraid of this man of bitterness. That's a stumbling block. That's what an unloving person does. If people around you are afraid to say the wrong thing around you, be careful. You might be a stumbling block, an unloving person. You might be in the darkness and you don't even realize it. It should be that the people around you are able to express love, but also concerns. They should be free to even fail in front of you. And you're not going to lash out and seek out and destroy. So a person who is embittered is angry and tries to do all he can to tear down people unintentionally or intentionally. He might even have good reasons to do so. If you are sick, and I always think of, so my wife pointed out to me, there were a long time ago, there are three causes of irritability in my life. When I'm sick, when I'm hungry, when I'm tired. And I actually think that's the case for most of us. When you're sick, you're hungry, you're tired. And if you're one of those three things and you are at home, are you an irritable person? Do you serve other people in the midst of those contexts? If you're even thinking about other people in the midst of those contexts, well, that says a lot about you. But I do think so often we feel as though we have this idea that we are have this right to when we're sick that everyone needs to coddle us. Everyone needs to take care of us. And we can be as angry or as frustrated as we want. That's what a stumbler does. And there's a ripple effect of that. Everyone becomes irritable. That's what happens in a household where one person is unloving and stumbles people. The ripple effect of everyone becoming unloving, irritable, a stumbler, and everyone is nervous. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, pastor at Westminster Church. He says, these people with this unloving nature are always finding problems and troubles. They always see insults where they do not exist, 
There is always something upsetting them. They're always being put out. They're constantly stumbling because of their unloving spirit. They're always so touchy and sensitive, and they constantly run other people into trouble. It's a tragedy. That's a household that is so difficult to be in. And whether you realize it or not, it could be your husband, your wife, your children, someone in your house, or maybe everybody, is just constantly walking in fear. But think of a loving person. They're exactly the opposite. They're always looking to encourage, to lift up, to point people to freedom, to having joy, because they have spiritual eyes. They can see the outside. They know what the darkness looked like because they were once there. And they're saying, I don't ever want to go there, and I will do all that I can to help other people to not stay in the darkness. And so they pray. They pray that the Lord would open others' eyes because only God can do that work. They see the mortal danger of the angry person, the irritable person, the frustrated person, and they appeal to the Lord for mercy. They pray that God would open his heart. And they're always willing to forgive, willing to encourage, willing to bless. The reason is because of Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, this is the truth of the loving person. They are always remembering they were once far off, now they're near. They've been brought near. And no one who is in Christ is able to say that they were never far off. We were all far off, infinitely far off from God. And it took an infinite mercy to draw us near. What we need to understand this most is finally a loving Savior. When we look at the new commandment that Jesus gives in John 13, 31 through 35, if you go back to the Gospel of John in chapter 13, what you'll notice is that, that those verses are sandwiched between two really strange passages. The first is in chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. And that's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And if you know that story, he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And masters, teachers, they didn't do that. That was a slave's job. I mean, after all, if feet are dirty. <laughs> They're dirty today. How much more when you're wearing sandals in a sewerless society? So... When Jesus is bending down, taking the washcloth, and about to wash the disciples' feet, they're just struck. Of course, we know how Peter responded. And they're saying, no, don't wash. Don't, you shouldn't do that. And Jesus says in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit because after he washes the feet, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then, of course, we know that Judas goes out and does this very thing of betraying him. So, again, I'm giving you the context of chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, where he says, love one another just as I have loved you. First is, he's washed the disciples' feet. He knows that Judas is about to betray him. He says, go and do it. And then, right after, when he says, love one another, comes verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. 
And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So sandwiched with the new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another, is Jesus washing the disciples' feet, him being betrayed, and then him saying that Peter's going to deny him three times. All of this is happening when he's saying, love one another as I have loved you. How does Jesus love? Even in that chapter alone, how does he love? He loved those who betrayed him, abandoned him, denied him. Unless we think he's just referring to the 12 disciples in chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, he's talking about me and you. If we were there, we would have probably done no different than the disciples because we do that today. Right now, we deny him. We turn away from him. We refuse to obey him. We refuse to trust him. And yet, he still loves us. He still went to that cross. And yet, therefore, we must love as he loved. We can't, though. When we've been wounded and hurt, it's so hard to love another person. How many times even the person we've covenanted love with, our husband and our wife, or a child that we've born, or a parent who has given us everything, and yet even in that loving Supposed loving context, it's still hard to love. How much more than when Jesus is about to be betrayed and denied, he says, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be there for you. And I'm not going to give up. This is what it means. And he says, then go love one another this way. By this, you will know, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not about loving a child or loving a parent or loving a sister or a brother because that's the way the world loves. It's about loving people who are most difficult, who, whom you decide to be steadfast in your love. This week, many of you are traveling You'll be sitting around tables and saying, what are you thankful for? Right? And you'll be asking that. Everyone's going to have this list of all the things I'm thankful for. Now, if Jesus, we're about to take the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, and imagine that was a Thanksgiving supper, and he were to ask around and say, what are you thankful for? Knowing what we know in John chapter 13, how many of them would have said, I'm so thankful for you, Jesus? They were already thinking about plotting to betray him, denying him, leaving him. One of the things that we so often say we're thankful for Christ, but oh, how we forget. But this is exactly why Jesus came. He came to love us. And he's saying, if you have that and you remember, then you really can love one another. And you will not be in the dark. You will be in the light. So on this Thanksgiving week, I challenge you to consider ways that you can love people who are difficult in your life. And remember that the only way you can do it is to remember all that Christ has done for you.
Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your son and all that he did. On that very night, O Lord, I can't imagine what you must have been feeling and thinking. That when you were washing the disciples' feet, and here is Judas plotting your betrayal, and Peter about to deny you three times, and yet you still went to that cross for them. You could have turned away. You could have said, these people, these men are not worth it. But while we were still sinners, Jesus, you died for us. And I pray for those who are in the in the darkness today, oh Lord. It's not just that they refuse to love, it's that they refuse to see that you are their hope. You are their only hope. And I pray that you would strike the hearts of those who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ today. We pray, Father, that there would be a surrendering of our wills, of our pride. Help us, O Lord, to love as you love. And so that for those of us who perhaps are embittered against another person, of someone in our lives, a friend, family member, whom perhaps we have yet to say to ask for forgiveness or to seek reconciliation, that we would do so. So we look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith and pray that as we come to this table that we will be so mindful of all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.